You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Do you ever find yourself thinking, haven't I done this before? You wake up, <sighs> eat breakfast, commute to work, eat lunch, finish work, commute home, eat dinner, go to bed, <sighs> and repeat. And again, and again, and again. And again. And again. Whether at the grandest cosmic scale of the sun rising and setting, or in the smallest details of our daily lives, we are driven by and base our existence around cycles. And financial markets are no different. In this week's commentary section, we meet a man who's become a master of understanding and anticipating economic and financial cycles. So join us as Robin Griffiths, a 50-year market veteran and the chief technical strategist at ECU Group, reveals the cyclical frameworks that have allowed him to successfully navigate global financial markets and advise institutional clients for over half a century. And I noticed that the trends in technical analysis were frequently driven by cycles in the underlying economy. And I've been using a variation of the model developed by Joseph Schumpeter back in the 1930s, effectively saying that the cycles that Schumpeter wrote about were correct, they would drive cycles in the stock market and I ought to be able to draw you a roadmap of where we were and therefore where we would be going. Accompanying us in the future are Grant Williams and Raoul Paul, co-founders of Real Vision. But when you listen to what Robin says and you look at the history books, you realize that these rhythms, these cycles are at work, clearly at work. And when you get three or four of them coming at the same time, there's always turbulence. And you can look through this historically as far back as you want and you'll see it clearly. You don't even have to be a full Austrian economist, but just somebody who accepts that the business cycle is there, you're thought of as a madman. Yet, if you actually apply what happens to asset prices, they go up and down with the economy. So therefore, it is the single most important factor and everybody ignores it. Rather than I explore Robin's frameworks and discuss why it's something investors just can't afford to ignore. Also coming up on the podcast, we have our long short segment where Grant and I go through the good and not so good stories of the week. Don't put the prices up. People are still at the checkout. They're getting their uh, they're getting their weekly shopping bill. And it's about the same but they're just getting half the amount of goods for it. So, you know, I'm, I'm long inflation. It's not where I want to be because I think, uh, I think uh, it's the start rather than the finish of this phenomenon. As well, we have our Things I Got Wrong segment where we speak with market experts about an investing mistake they made and ask them to share a pearl of wisdom with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. This week, we feature Brent Johnson, CEO of Santiago Capital in San Francisco. So I think sometimes when you operate in the contrarian world, I think sometimes you got to be contrarian to the other gold guys, right? And I think it's very easy to get caught up in that sound chamber or echo chamber of, of those that work in your same industry. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is February 23rd, 2017, and welcome to episode four of Adventures in Finance. 
We are coming to you live from the sunny Cayman Islands, and here with me is our producer, James. James, how are you? Good, thank you, Aaron. Good. So today we are going to be talking about cycles in our feature, and in thinking about cycles, I was looking at Grant's travels and trying to see if there's any cyclicality to it, and you know, to be honest, you, you tell me, I, I can't figure it out. So Grant, where in the world are you? Well, I can tell you there is zero cyclicality to it, apart from the fact that I'm going around and around the world. I mean, I guess that's a cycle of sorts. Uh, for the first time in a long time, I am uh, at home in Singapore, sleeping in my own bed, which uh, is a rare treat, having <laughs> just got back from Cape Town, South Africa, which I have to say, my first time there, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. If anyone out there hasn't been to Cape Town, then you should go tomorrow. It's spectacular. Yeah, I've heard so many uh, so many great things and see so many pictures of Cape Town, but I haven't had a chance to go myself. But Well, it's funny you mention that because uh, I'm actually South African by birth and I've got loads of family in Cape Town. Uh, so, you know, whenever I get the chance to go back, it's definitely one of the places that I try and, and visit because, as you said, it is an absolutely beautiful city. It really is, yeah. I, uh, I wish I had more time there. But as always, uh, I had to get back to record the podcast. So here we go. Well, thanks for coming back for us, Grant. Before we start the podcast with our long short segment, you know, I read an article online about a small cap fund manager by the name of Eric Cinnamond. Now, he's dubbed the godfather of small cap, absolute value investing, and he started managing a $5 million fund for First Union and turned it into a $350 million fund in two years from 1996 to 1998. Now, he recently returned all funds to investors because he didn't feel that it was the right environment to invest. And I read that and I was just like, wow, you know, to have the flexibility to not feel like he has to stay invested despite these bubblicious valuations. I just thought that was incredible. Well, it's not necessarily flexibility, Aaron. I mean, to me, it takes a lot of courage to do that. I mean, you're, you're essentially giving away your livelihood. And, and uh, you know, I wish there were more people like Eric that had the guts to do that. If they didn't feel it was the right thing to invest people's money, give it back to them instead of trying to, uh, instead of trying to eke out that performance fee and the management fee just by keeping it invested. So kudos to him. Uh, now, next up is a segment called Long Short, where we go through the good and bad stories from the week. So, Aaron, what's your good story from the week? Oh, <laughs> uh, It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, uh, Grant. Uh, I am long the IRS, which... Uh, hey, we're, we're, we are all long the IRS in <laughs> some way, shape, or form, trust me. Uh, well, in, in this shape, I'm actually long uh, the IRS in terms of robot taxes. So, I don't know if you saw this, but Bill Gates came out and said that robots, uh, because they'll take the jobs of, of workers... They should pay taxes. Um, and his argument is that you can't just give up that income tax. Uh, so I, I saw this and I was, I was just kind of flabbergasted. I was like, yeah, you know, this, this, is, uh, this is great. Um, robot companies, companies that make robots in the future will be taxed and then there's just more tax revenue for the IRS. So I thought that was, uh, was good for the IRS and, and uh, obviously not good for the workers. But uh, I am long the IRS this week. All righty. Well, for me, this is something that um, I... Uh, I spotted on the Pippa Malmgren's Twitter feed, and Pippa's fantastic at spotting this stuff. You know, she's a great one for for following uh, this this idea of shrinkflation. And you know, with all the efforts being put into uh, creating inflation by central bankers around the world, and you know, you and I have spoken about this before. But uh, based on some uh, some amazing stats that Pippa put up, they are they are starting to get their way. Only it's not in the way you would expect. Uh, Pippa's been identifying shrinkflation episodes in and around the UK. For, for, for example, she spotted some gourmet mini wafers from Thomas J. Fudge, which, uh, <laughs> which were £2.25. Uh, they're still £2.25, except uh, they now weigh five grams less. So that's a 7%, a 7% hike. She found some uh, bottles of vodka, which uh, are a pound, 
but the bottles now contain 275 mils instead of 330 mils. So that's a 55 milliliter uh, reduction or a 20% price hike. Uh, and and some turkey mini fillets have shrunk from 573 grams to 500 grams. That's almost a 50% rise. That's ridiculous. And so, you know, this idea that, yeah, it, it's crazy, but it's, you know, it's it's just the sneakiness of it, right? I mean, you don't hmm. put the prices up. People are still at the checkout. They're getting their, uh, they're getting their weekly shopping bill, and it's about the same, but they're just getting half the amount of goods for it. So, you know, I'm, I'm long inflation. It's not where I want to be. Um, because I think uh, I think uh, it's the start rather than the finish of this phenomenon, but at least it's uh, it's success of some sorts for all the hard work that our friendly central bankers have put in for us. Yeah, I sense a theme here in our longs is that we're we're long the government because they benefit both from inflation and from collecting greater tax revenue. Um, but Grant, I don't know in your own personal experience, you you've seen the same thing with shrinkflation. Um, I recently bought a Toblerone bar, and I was like, man, this is a lot smaller than what it used to be. And when I go watch, uh, I was at the U.S. Open uh, in New York in, last September, and the, the Haagen-Dazs bars are, are smaller than what they used to be. So, And I, I mean, I haven't been around a long time, but I mean, it's, I, I even notice it. So it's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, the, yeah, the to- you, you mentioned the Toblerone thing, Aaron. I mean, that, that was a big deal in the U.K. I mean, people were boycotting. Uh, I think it's Nestle <laughs> that made Toblerone. People were boycotting it because you know, what they did was they made the gaps between the triangles right. wider. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's cunning and and unconscionable. People getting fooled, yeah, it it really is, it really is. So now, what about your what about your short for the week? All right, Grant, my short for the week is something that uh, it's a theme that we we started with with the India demonetization, and I've kind of followed through with it. And it's a story that I feel like has not gotten any coverage, even though it's it relates to the tenth uh, largest economy in the world, and that's the that's South Korea. And I'm short the South Korean one because. The central bank came out, Central Bank of Korea came out and said that they are planning, they have plans to withdraw all coins from circulation by 2020, followed by removing all the banknotes soon afterwards. And as you'd expect, they didn't ask for any feedback from the public. So this is the 10th largest economy in the world, taking all their coins out of circulation by 2020 and then moving to the cash notes afterwards. And it's like, no one's talking about this, but it's South Korea. So I am short the uh, South Korean won this week. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, for me, my short, again, it's a recurring one, um, but I'm short Greece. Uh, This is something that keeps coming back at this time of year, and it keeps going away again this time of year after much to and fro between uh, the Eurocrats and the Greek Greek officials, and eventually they all kiss and make up and they come up with a solution to the problem because they kind of have to. And I just get a feeling that this time uh, things may not go quite as smoothly as people think. And when you look at how quickly the market is looking past this, and and they really have become conditioned to think it's not a problem, um, I am short Greece because I just have a nasty feeling that this time someone is going to surprise somebody else uh, and it's not going to be of the pleasant variety. So for me, uh, I'm short Greece once again. So, Grant, do you think the economic hitmen have gone one step too far with Greece in terms of using debt to leverage uh, and to to get the reforms uh, that they're looking for? Well, look, they've gone five steps too far. I mean, look, if you look back at what happened to the U.S. during the Great Depression, Greece is in a far worse state now than America ever was during the Great Depression. And nobody talks about it because it's Greece. It's not America. And so, you know, what's been done to the Greek people uh, in, in, the, in the name of keeping the EU and keeping the euro together is nothing short of disgraceful in my, in my view. And, and at some point, you know, we've seen Brexit, we've seen 
Trump, we've seen all these signs of people rising up. I'm amazed the Greeks haven't done it yet, but but you know something is going to happen there because it, it just can't go on like this. Not not for the motives um, that it's being that it's being imposed upon them. So I, I I just have a nasty feeling that this time this time around, things are not going to go away quietly. We'll see. We will see. All right. So coming up next is our commentary segment We're featuring Robin Griffiths, chief technical strategist of ECU Group. And I'm really looking forward to this segment because he shares his cyclical frameworks for analyzing economies and financial markets. Now, this presentation dates back to August 2016, but is just as relevant now. And this is a framework that he built over 50 years of experience in the markets. Yeah, I was, I was delighted to get Robin. I've, I've met Robin and shared a stage with him in London numerous times. He's, he's, a, he's a wonderful human being and, and such a bright guy. And this is one of those things that uh, when we put the presentation up, you're kind of you're hoping people get it and you're hoping people embrace it because it's a little different to, to some of the stuff that people are used to. And the response from the people that watched it was just uh, overwhelmingly positive, which just delighted me because it's such a fascinating way to look at markets. And, uh, and I can't wait to share it with the listeners today. Okay, so let's get at it. We open up with Raoul Pal. So I'm looking forward to this because Robin Griffiths, I used to work with him in my very early days back in, I guess, 1990 to 1993 uh, when I was at James Capel and Robin was there. And I didn't realise how much of my framework that I developed over time actually came from him. Right. You know, obviously, <laughs> I think osmosis. I'm a, yeah, I think I'm a genius, right? But right. you know, when I go back and I saw Robin do this interview, it's like, wow, I forgot how much that I'd learned from him. So I think it's going to be fascinating to hear about Robin. So let's let Robin introduce himself because he's got a hell of a history. It's, it's, and I think it's, it's, it's a little bit different for most people. So let's hear from Robin first. I'm Robin Griffiths of the ECU Group. Uh, author of The Global Investment Roadmap. Uh, I've been in the London stock market since 1966, and the roadmap is the development of all the work I've done in the, in the last 50 years. I use a blended approach these days, although I started off as a fundamental analyst. However, I discovered fairly early on that you didn't actually make any money unless there was an uptrend in the share price whilst you owned it, and that seduced me into being a technical analyst. So I've blended those two things together. And I noticed that the trends in technical analysis were frequently driven by cycles in the underlying economy. And I've been using a variation of the model developed by Joseph Schumpeter back in the 1930s, and effectively saying if the cycles that Schumpeter wrote about were correct, they would drive cycles in the stock market, and I ought to be able to draw you a roadmap of where we were, and therefore where we would be going. And, and this leads to a process of believing that there's a special shape on the charts to a bull market and a different special shape uh, to a bear market. And they do indeed fit around uh, the normal economic cycles. You know, cycles is something that I've spent so much time looking at. And it staggers me that the standard economics don't assume that the business cycle goes <laughs> up and down, right? Mm -hmm. So you could show James's, who's recording us here, his kid the economy, and he go well, it goes up and down. Yeah. Yet all economists, the entire thousand-odd people at the Federal Reserve, all the PhDs, don't assume that at all. You know, I, I had this conversation with Pippa Malgren, and we were, we were chatting about this, and she said to me, you know, if you, if you talk about the business cycle in those circles, you're just written off immediately. Oh, he's one of those, those guys. And, and you're, you're one of them, and, and the, your opinion is completely invalid. It, it's bizarre to me, because like you say, it's so clear. This cyclicality. And Schumpeter wrote the books on the business cycle quite a long time ago, and it was fashionable for a period of time. And then 
everybody became a Keynesianist and then everybody became a monetarist and everyone became a blend between the two. And everyone's forgotten it. And if you mention that you might be Austrian in your view, you don't even have to be a full Austrian economist, but just somebody who accepts that the business cycle is there, you're thought of as a madman. Yet, if you actually apply what happens to asset prices, they go up and down with the economy. So, therefore, it is the single most important factor, and everybody ignores it. Yeah, I mean, think, think about the poor people who are actually born in Austria that have to say they're Austrian and get discounted <laughs> straight away. I mean, yeah, the, the thing that I find interesting, you know, when you led into that clip, talking about how much you realise you'd learned from Robin over the years, it's fascinating how much listening to other people shapes your views. You don't realise at the time. You know, we've had this through the whole Real Vision process. As people come on and they listen to smart people, you, know, you, can, you can hear that stuff going into people's heads and it's going to help them form opinions and frameworks that they're themselves going to take in almost within the next sort of 10 years. It's, it's fascinating to watch. So let's hear more from Robin. Uh, there are several cycles. Some of them are natural. Uh, the important one is the annual seasonal deviation. And um, most people know the rhyme, you sell in May and go away. You get a midsummer rally and then you get a sell-off to St. Ledger Day, which is in, in late October. Uh, the next cycle is a four-year cycle, which was a British economic cycle when Britain was a dominant superpower. Ever since that role has been America, it's become the American presidential election cycle. And importantly, what normally happens in the US presidential election cycle is the stock market goes up to and indeed through the election process, and whoever wins gets a honeymoon, and then a reality attack. However, we're not in a normal one this time, because the next and more dominant cycle is a 10-year cycle. There is a significant probability of the market being up, down, or sideways, depending on which year of the economy, of the uh, decade we're in. And normally, the first one to three years of the decade are a bit neutral to slightly negative. The fourth and fifth years get going into a real bull market, and the fifth year is usually the strongest year of the decade. Then you get a nasty correction in the sixth and seventh year. If there's going to be a crash, it comes in the seventh year, and you end the decade with a bit of a rally. And this, unfortunately, also back, back tests quite well. If the election that you're coming up to is at the end of a two-term president, who's therefore, that by definition, a lame duck, you're going to get a change anyway. Markets hate uncertainty. And if the fifth year of the decade against what is normal turns out to be a bad year with a significant market top in it, then you get a different roadmap prediction. The, the, the second uh, thing that goes with this is that in a, what you might call a common or garden bull market, it's three good years followed by one bad year, and a normal bear market is a fall of 25%. However, uh, if you want a heuristic rule of thumb about all bear markets, uh, use the formula, it, they fall a quarter, a third, or a half. And very few bear markets ever fall more than 50%. The few that do go straight into the history books, indeed the annals of legend. And um, so the frothy markets are vulnerable to a setback of up to 50%, but the ones that are reasonable value, only about 25%. Now, when we come to the secular trends, the very long-term trends, we have a schema that shows a variety of these long-term trends. The shortest one is the decadian rhythm I've just talked about, but there's also a commodity cycle, a geopolitical risk cycle, and more importantly, a demographic cycle. An important thing to notice is four of these long-term trends are negative at the moment.
QE and zero interest rates can certainly override very short-term cycles like the annual seasonality, but they're most unlikely to be able to override all four of the long-term cycles. When we come on to the uh, secular trends, uh, my work shows quite clearly that the date when the secular trends last altered direction was the year 2000 at the dot-com bubble peak. Since then, almost all Western world stock markets are lower now than they were in the year 2000. The fact that the US and Germany, the two strongest Western markets, are a little above where they were then does not make them go into a secular uptrend. If they were in a secular uptrend, they would literally be hundreds of percent higher than they are now. The markets that are in secular uptrend are China, particularly, and India, and Philippines and Indonesia, those sort of Asian markets. After the crash that China has recently had, it is up 850% since the year 2000. So completely different ballpark from where the Western world stock markets are. So on my work, the Western world is still in a secular downtrend, which it has been in for 16 years, and it's not likely to end that secular downtrend um, for several more years. Certainly around 2020 is the earliest I can see that ending. The fact that we've been able to get the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 a little higher than they were back then does not mean they've been good investments and does not mean they're in a secular uptrend. Okay, that's pretty mind-blowing. <laughs> I mean, what he's gone is gone through every single one of the business cycles. Now, if you tease them all apart, because there was a ton of information in that, I think most people are going to have to listen to that three yeah. or four times. Um, what he's saying is, in the short term, we're going into this weird year thing where the seventh year is a bad year. Also, once you have the two-term change of government, it's usually a bad year. Which you've done some work on. We've seen those numbers. Yeah, I found 100% yeah. of all two-term changes of government in the US going back to 1910 and maybe earlier all have major bear markets or recessions. So he's suggesting that we're due a recession on a number of levels and that because of the secular cycle is still down, the big-term picture, that the possibility of something of a, of a pretty nasty outcome post the honeymoon period of Trump. So what he's, what he's kind of saying when he tees it apart is that we need to be more cautious this year because the market's psychology now is Trump is the new Reagan, everything is fine, yeah. this is great. And he's saying, well, if you look back at the history of stock markets, the probability is actually the reverse. It's funny, this, when you have these discussions, and anyone listening who's a Real Vision subscriber that hasn't seen this should actually watch this presentation because it is fascinating. And I was really happy to see the response to it because it's one of those things you kind of put this out there and you wonder are people going to get this or are people going to embrace it or are they going to just think it's all a load of hokum but when you listen to what robin says and you look at the history books you realize that these rhythms these these cycles are at work clearly at work and and when you get three or four of them coming at the same time there's always turbulence and you can look through this historically as far back as you want and you'll see it clearly and so to your point this idea that Trump is going to be a smoothly successful president is a really dangerous assumption to make at this point in time. Yeah, and Robin, like myself, I think would, even though he doesn't use the word, he'll think of the word that um, all of this in terms of probabilities. Yeah. So he would suggest that the probability of something bad happening is is elevated. Yeah. Nothing more than that. But, you know, in our world of investments, probability is everything. You're right. If the probability reaches a certain level, you have to factor it into the investment decisions you make. It's just, it's just common sense. Yeah, as opposed to ignoring it. I mean, ignoring it might be the right call. Yeah. 
But you have to realise the odds are against you. Risk management. All right, let's move on, James, and hear the next clip. Uh, when we go on to what is driving the secular uh, negative trend, in the Western world, demographics is very important. People drive e the economy, and that drives the trends in the stock market. And actually, it doesn't matter what country you're from or what culture or religion you're in, human beings do the same sort of things at the same sort of time. You, you leave college, you pretty soon get married, then you start a family, and then you build your family up. And it is your expenditure in your life cycle that drives the economy. But the peak of your spending wave in your life cycle, even if you're going to live to 100, your cycle peaks between about, around about the age 50. 46 to 53 is, is the zone. At that stage, you're living in the biggest house you're likely to own. You've got all of the children that you're going to have, and they're living with you, and you're paying their school fees. And you've got the, the biggest cars you're going to have. From now on, the children are going to leave you and start their own families. You will be getting rid of stuff, and you'll have two big priorities. You'll be saving for your pension plan. And this is a problem now that your pension plan was mainly invested in the bond market and the yield on those bonds has been taken down in most countries to a very low level and some countries actually negative. And your second priority is you know you're entering that part of your life cycle when you'll use more health care than at any other stage. And the health system is incredibly expensive and in many cases uninsurable and un unaffordable. So your consumption is going to be cut right back. And particularly in the Western world, consumption is what drives the economy. So until the next generation comes along, after the retiring post-World War II baby boomers, uh, there isn't going to be much growth, no matter what levels uh, interest rates go down to. I think this is a really key thing. And I look at demographics as a really huge driver. And I know, Grant and I, you and I made a presentation about the monsoon thing, yeah. which is the inverse of demographics, where countries have great demographics. But I looked at this first-hand example because when my dad retired, you know, he used to get a new BMW every three years, and he was typical kind of corporate exec kind of stuff. And the expenditure, the kind of wine he'd buy, the kind of restaurants he'd go to. Then he retired and moved to Spain. He changed his car twice in 16 years. Yeah. And they're much cheaper cars. His expenditure in going out and everything else has collapsed because his retirement income is much less than he thought it would be because of low interest rates. So he, when he, when he was younger, he would assume he'd get ten percent return. You know, that was our parents' generation, yeah. and now, and then five percent, you know, was a decent opportunity, and now it's zero. So the spending pattern has collapsed enormously from those people, and the baby boomers are all going into this now. They've all tried so hard to speculate to make the money back they didn't save. So that was the housing crisis, the internet bubble. And now, again, they're all involved in the markets, hoping they can make their money back at the last moment. Um, and yet they all go into retirement. They all have to be sellers of assets, and they all have to be low spenders. This, is, this demographic theme comes up regularly throughout the content. You know, we listen to people, and it's become such a big focus for so many people, which is great, because for the longest time, these are such big trends that you can kind of see them coming, but... People don't feel inclined to do anything about them and invest accordingly. And then suddenly you're at that wall. You know, we, we reached the point where the Japanese population started dying, right on cue, when we all knew they would, and it came as a shock to people. And, and to your point about your dad, it's funny how you can see these things happening around you to, to, to people close to you, but if you're not really paying attention, like you did there, people don't really notice it. 
But the same thing happened to my parents, same thing's happening to everybody's parents, and that means something. And you have to be able to, to take that knowledge, extrapolate it out into an entire generation of people who are going through exactly the same situation, and apply it to your investment. And I'd also argue that people like us who are Gen Xers, we've all had to support our parents in the end. Because even however big our parents' retirement fund was, it really wasn't enough. And I know, you know, you've helped your parents, I've helped my parents. I think us Gen Xers in the middle have, have been part of that. And I think the millennials are going to get stiffed with helping the baby boomers. And they don't realise because, you know, everyone thinks the millennials is the, the great big hope. Yeah. A, they've learned what their parents, trying to learn what their parents' mistakes were and not repeat them. But secondly, they're going to end up bailing out their parents which is, means that they get stiff. It's only after the millennials this whole thing cleans up again, which is why we both love Neil Howe yeah. and his work. Well, and, and if my kids are listening, start saving girls. <laughs> there is some good news coming, though, in that another big generation has been born. We're called the millennials. They weren't all born in the year 2000, but that was the peak of the, the birth rate. Uh, and at 16, they're not old enough to drive the economy yet. But round about 2020, and certainly by 2023, this next enormous generation will be ready to drive a boom in the Western world. And there's some good news about the technologies coming along that they will be creating new industries with. We can see some of them right now coming along. Um, uh, new battery technology brings in the era of electric vehicles. Um, there's also biotechnology, nanotechnology, being able to print parts in the Western world means you don't have to farm out all the manufacturing jobs to the Far East anymore. So there will be a boom driven by these great uh, technologies. And whereas historically we had to wait 50 years between the steam engine and the electric light bulb and that sort of thing for the next great boom, we're now almost, uh, there's technology waiting in the wings to create new wealth coming along. So when the demographics and that, that comes together, we will have a boom. But we've got to get from where we are now to there and survive meanwhile. Yeah, uh, survive meanwhile. Yes, I mean, look, these demographic cliffs are pretty tough and I'm not entirely convinced that the millennial generation is the, out, is the answer. I kind of side with Neil Howe and those guys that say it's probably the generation after. Mm -hmm. I can't what they're called. The homeland generation. That's that, right. right? Um, because the, the millennials get stiffed, I think, with the baby boomers and the issues that they have. They're also scarred by being born in a recession, then seeing another recession, and they will get another one before the time they start hitting their 30s and their peak yeah. earning power. So they're going to be very biased towards saving, not spending. You know, And we see that pattern repeatedly. Even the businesses they build are about sharing economy yep. as opposed to consumption-based economies. So I'm not entirely... I don't necessarily agree with Robin, but either way, I mean, there is a potential that something else comes out of this. But... Um, what we have to suffer first, I think, is interesting. I, I had a fascinating conversation about this with Ken Groback and Mike Williams in uh, Montreal last year. And, you know, they were talking about this. And, and when you hear guys like that, demographers run through the numbers, you know, that this is the biggest generation that's ever been born. And so, you know, their theory, which they back up very eloquently and with lots of data, is that with this massive, enormous influx of people coming into that phase of their life, it can't help but give a boost to the economy. I mean, yours is the opposite side to that, and, and I, I haven't decided which side Yeah, not so much down. the opposite, but more but, that it's yeah, more muted. the counterpoint, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and I don't know which way this goes, because we're still kind of trying to see what this generation are going to do, but whichever way you look at it, there's a lot resting on this millennial generation. Yeah, I mean, what was interesting is the baby boomers, when they all came into the workforce, the big 70s inflation to me was not 
necessarily a monetary phenomena. It was the fact that the largest generation on Earth, all at the same time, went out and bought a suit, yep. a house, a car, and all of that stuff, all at the same time. So that the general consumption of goods rose dramatically across the world, and supply could not keep up with it. So it created the start of the of the Great Inflation. This time around, it's more staggered in how it appears because you know these guys are all living at home. It's they, they're not jumping into the labour force in the same way that the baby boomers were. So maybe it's still muted, muted, but clearly it's got to be a positive. Yeah. And I was really happy to get you and Raul to comment on this on this uh, on this feature or in this inter- uh, presentation. Sorry, uh, because you know we're going through a system phase right now, and the vast majority of the world is sort of stuck in this linear paradigm of thinking about the world and i just thought it was important to expose people to other other ways of looking at the world be it cyclical or systemic uh or whatnot but just you know one of my favorite charts is to look at uh it's from 2008 2009 and it shows it, it looks like it's basically a it looks like a bridge over a valley uh it shows you actual gdp and then what the econ- uh, the economist predicted what GDP would be in 2008-2009 and it's just ludicrous it, it, it completely exemplifies the linear thinking that uh, vitiates um, the ivory towers and the people who are set making policies so I just thought it was important to uh, to expose these different paradigms well it's, it's very rare you see those prediction charts and people come out on the low side right it's very very rare that you get surprises to the upside in that kind of forecasting on a company by company quarter by quarter basis it happens but yeah, those those long-term uh, payoffs. Humans are optimistic. That's that's our nature. Uh, it's also the nature of humans to try and to try and control the world around us, uh, which I think is exactly what the central bankers have been trying to do. Uh, is just kind of negate or abolish the, the downward half of the business cycle uh, to avoid any pain. Because, uh, as we've talked about before, the the, the ramifications of having so much debt um, is potentially a serious problem. So. I don't think they can do it. I don't think you can subjugate the laws of nature, but that's not going to stop them trying. And the worst part is that there's no accountability. These predictions just seem to get lost and swept under the currents of the the media and news flow. But we're not about that here at Real Vision, which sets us up for our next segment, Things I Got Wrong, where we ask market experts, hedge fund managers, and traders to tell us about a time they got something wrong or even made a mistake and to share the investing lessons with our listeners. And this week, Grant, I had the pleasure to speak with Brent Johnson, CEO of Santiago Capital in San Francisco. And he told an interesting story about his experience with gold, which I know is dear to your heart, um, that they had in 2013, and why it's sometimes important to be contrarian against the other contrarians. So Brent, uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Why don't we start off? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Yeah. Uh, my name is Brent Johnson. I have a firm called Santiago Capital in San Francisco. I also am part of a firm called Baker Avenue Asset Management. Uh, essentially, I'm a financial advisor to high net worth individuals and families. Um, and I have a particular interest, I guess, and specialty in the precious metals arena. Great. So as you know, sticking with the theme of, of this segment, we call things I got wrong. Brent, can you describe a time when you faced a significant investing challenge or even possibly a mistake you made? Uh, yeah, I mean, I could fill up a couple hours with the uh, mistakes I've made. Um, <laughs> yeah, that uh, seems to kind of go with the territory in investing. But, uh, you know, the idea, I guess, is to kind of learn from them. And I, I think one of the biggest mistakes that I've made uh, in my career was going back to 2013. Uh, and it has to do with the precious metals arena. Um, in the spring of 2013, um, I thought that gold had the potential to have a correction. Um 
I thought it had the potential to, if it broke, I thought, I thought that if it broke 1500, which it looked like it might, I thought it had the potential to go down to the 1200 or $1,300 level. And so we had reduced some exposure and we bought some hedges. And so when in fact the big correction did come, um, you know, we still lost money during that time period, but not as much as uh, I guess many of our, as many of our competitors and it wasn't unexpected and our hedges did very well. So, um, you know, that worked very well. Uh, we removed our hedges, you know, almost uh, to the day at the bottom in, in the summer and we got pretty long going into the fall. And for the first, you know, call it six weeks, that worked really good. And we were moving into September of 2013. And I don't know if people remember this back then, but, but back then there, uh, the Fed had uh, been threatening to taper their asset purchases and everybody thought that they were going to taper. And that was kind of expected to be seen as a negative thing for gold if they tapered, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I kind of, through all my analysis, I decided that they were not going to taper. And I kind of made that call kind of publicly that they were not going to taper. And then I also said that uh, the government would shut down, which it ended up doing. I said the debt ceiling would be broken, uh, which it ultimately was. And so I said, if any one of those three things happen, that should be very good for gold. Well, it turns out that all three of them happened um, and gold took another dive. So I, I was faced with this situation where all my analysis um, that I had done proved to be correct, but yet the market did not react the way I thought it would react to those three signals. And I was probably much too stubborn um, to correct my exposure subsequent to that subsequent downturn in gold, um, even though the market was telling me very vocally that it didn't care what I thought and that the market was headed lower. Um, so I kind of had this event where, you know, it's probably to, in one way is the best call I'd ever made um, and that I kind of went against the grain of most people and got it right. Um, but yet the investment outcome that I thought would take place was the exact opposite. And so, you know, having to kind of come to terms with being right, but being wrong and, uh, you know, w which way do you go? And I was not quick enough to uh, reconcile that exposure. So, so that that's probably my biggest mistake. When you talk about being right and still being wrong, it it, um, it sounds eerily similar to, I guess, what we saw in 2016, where a lot of people, if you look at the U.S. presidential election, a lot of people thought that Donald Trump being elected would be negative for stock markets. And, you you, you know, I, me personally, I thought Trump was going to win and I thought the market was going to tank. And lo and behold, within a span of a couple hours, the, the Dow reversed completely V-shaped. So it sounds yes. a lot similar. Um you were talking about stubbornness at, at what, you know, and this was in end of 2013, I believe. Yeah, it was the fall of, it was the fall of 2013. Yes. So if, if I recall, it looked like gold was making a double bottom at that point. Um, yes. And at, at what point did you realize, cause there's still some ways to go down for gold at, at that point. I mean, with hindsight now, uh, at what point did you realize that you were actually stubborn? Well, you know, that's a good question. <laughs> you, some people would argue that I'm still being stubborn because I still uh, believe that people should have exposure to gold. Uh, but what it probably took me three to four months to realize that the downturn, well, the, so the, 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 the steepness or the, 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 the length of the fall from gold from 1500 to 1200 wasn't a surprise to me. The time at which it's spent at 1200 was the biggest surprise to me. And it probably took me, you know, probably two or three months after that first, you know, or that second downturn in the fall of 2013 
before I realized that, hey, uh, it might actually stay down at these levels for a while. Um, and I, but I, you know, I still, and so I was probably too stubborn in that first two or three months. Now, I still think from an overall portfolio view that people should still have exposure to gold. Um, but it doesn't mean that it, it, it had to rally back up to its highs from that low right away. And it, it probably took me two or three months to realize that this in, might indeed be a long-term bottom rather than a V-shaped bottom. Um, so I, I would say it probably took me two or three months to kind of come to that realization. So, you know, the stubbornness factor there. Well, ultimately you came to that realization and I guess, uh, uh, moving forward a little bit, what, what lesson or nugget of financial wisdom, uh, do you think you could share from this whole experience with gold? Sure. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, th this is something that I think everybody's probably heard before, and th this will lead into a, a second part of this answer, but I think a lot of people ha have said that, you know, gold's rise is inevitable, but not necessarily imminent. So I guess that was probably reinforced for me. So even though I'd heard that and I knew that it didn't necessarily happen right away, I thought it would happen quicker than it did. Um, so that's one thing. But I th that leads me into one of, the, one of the other bigger mistakes, which I think everybody kind of needs. I've, I've mis done this before, so I'm guessing that other people have done it before as well, is that, and is that the thinking that just because you've heard something, um, some piece of wisdom, and you know it to be true, and maybe you even repeated it, that that somehow makes you immune to actually doing that exact thing. And uh, so, so as an example, you know, I'm very fortunate to have a guy named Rick Rule as, as a friend of mine. And you know, either listening to him at conferences or talking to him in person, he's always just a wealth of these nuggets of wisdom and, and uh, experience. And, you know, I've heard him say these things so many times that I, that I, I think that uh, I somehow thought that I was immune to these things. And lo and behold, I think it was about a year ago, I realized that I was guilty of one of the things that I had heard him say a number of times and that I knew to be true. And it, it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I remember I even called him and I was talking to him and I said, um, I, I said, hey, you know, I've heard you say this a million times. I thought, you know, that as a result that I would never do it. And then, lo and behold, I realized I was doing it. And, and he kind of laughed and he said, well, the only reason I say him is I'm guilty of him, too. <laughs> and so I think I don't, I, don't, I don't know if that kind of plays into that. But, uh, you know, I think despite these nuggets of wisdom that you get either through listening to very smart people or your own experience, I think you got to constantly be checking yourself whether or not you're guilty of them even if you know it to be true and even though you know you shouldn't be doing it. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, last fall where gold had a big or last year where gold had a big run up and then it, and then it turned back down. I would say that my experience in 2013 kind of helped me play that run up last fall a little bit better. Um, because I think many times in the contrarian world, you know, and I would consider myself a contrarian investor as, just because you have an idea that's contrarian doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the conventional wisdom is the conventional wisdom because it's usually correct. I, I, and uh, the key is figuring out when is the conventional conventional wisdom wrong and, and betting against it. Um, and so I think sometimes when you operate in the contrarian world, and, and you know, gold is very much a contrarian asset, um, you think that just because you're in the gold world that you're automatically a contrarian. Well, I think sometimes you got to be contrarian to the other other gold guys, right? And I think it's very easy to get uh, lost and, and, and caught up in that sound chamber or echo chamber of, of those that work in your same industry. And, you know, I, I know I've been guilty of that be before myself and, and, and 
you know, I was certainly guilty of it in 2013 when everybody thought gold had seen its bottom and was running back up. So um, I, I'd say I'd say that's a piece of wisdom that I learned from 2013 that helped me a little bit last year. Great. Well, Brent, actually, would it be possible for you to share with us uh, the, the wisdom that Rick Rule, Rick Rule shared with you? Well, I think, you know, there, there's many things. And I, I, I don't know if I remember exactly what it was at the time. I think I think it had to do with he's he always says in uh, in the commodity markets, you're either a contrarian or you're a victim. Right. And I think that goes back to, you know, because I was in gold and gold such a contrarian asset, I was thinking, well, hey, I'm a contrarian. I'm not I'm not thinking like everybody else. I'm you know, doing my own thing. But the reality is I was doing exactly what every other gold investor was doing. So in that sense, I wasn't contrarian at all. Right. And so where that helped me is last year. I mean, gold had a very good year. Right. And um, through the first six months, it looked like it was rocketing back to all time highs. Right. And, right. you know, I think that previous experience helped me realize that while I'm still very bullish gold long term, I thought the fall or the second half of the year was going to be much different than the first half of the year, despite you know, the echo chamber of the rest of the gold market. And, you know, ultimately that proved uh, to be correct in, um, you know, November and December. Now we've had a pretty good rebound here um, in January. So we'll see how that plays out. But, um, you know, I, I would reiterate, first of all, anything Rick Rule says, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time arguing with. But, uh, you know, his concept of you're either a victim or you're either a contrarian or a victim, I think uh, holds true. You just got to make sure you're, you're, you're applying that to, to everything and not just your industry. Right. I, I think it's fascinating when you talk about contrarian, uh, of a contrarian, because I think you're one of the few um, people who cover gold who are actually uh, bearish on gold in the, in the near term uh, because you recognize uh, sort of the strength of the dollar. So I, th I think that's just fascinating to, to hear that. I recently watched you uh, on, on Real Vision. So, uh, but that's, uh, I guess that's, that's all the time we have for today. But uh, Brent, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Uh, always happy to be here and uh, good luck to you guys. You know, it's funny that the gold world is is a world where uh, it takes even more courage than normal to actually come out and say um, that you think the price is going to go down because uh, it's a small community, it's a tight community and everyone generally who's involved in it for any length of time is, is bullish. That's just the way it is. Um, and Brent is a long-term bull on gold and he's one of the few people that occasionally has uh, has the ability to be tactically uh, a seller of it. And, and it, and it does take, it does take courage and convictions to, to step up and do that. And, pe and people, it's a valuable lesson for people listening that, uh, yeah, you can maintain your long-term conviction, but sometimes if you feel that the market's going to move against you in the short term, um, it's, uh, it's a brave man to position himself on the other side of, of what his long-term conviction is, but often it can be a really, really effective way to trade. And you'll know this, and just from my own, um, observations, the gold community can become sort of dogmatic in their views and and not be able to pivot and and uh and to be flexible depending on what, what the market environment is so that's one of the things that impressed me about brent as well is that you know he understands what's going on with central banks and the accumulation massive accumulation of debt but he's still able to uh, be nimble in his thinking which impresses me uh, tremendously but anyways guys we have come to the part of the show where i have to relay to you a message from our lawyers Anything you've heard in this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So be smart, do your fundamental research, chart your own technicals, and trade responsibly. All right, next week we have our usual segments of long, short, and things I got wrong. But our feature is going to be a deep dive on China's One Belt, One Road development strategy. 
Yeah, despite all the noise and all the concerns surrounding China devaluing its currency, we're going to look at some of the opportunities and trends that are developing in and around China uh, that affect a lot of countries in that region all the way through uh, to the edges of Europe. It's got a fascinating discussion. We'll hear from leading investors with experience investing in China, including uh, a good friend of mine, Louis Garf, one of the founders of Gavcal Capital. When you look at it, what seems to me is that China is pretty much trying to do what the U.S. did with the Marshall Plan in the 40s and 50s, where it's saying, you know what, we're going to give you the money, we're going to build your infrastructure with Chinese workers, and using Chinese machinery that you guys will buy from us. And we also hear from Michael Howell, the managing director of Cross Border Capital. Uh, now, I think generally there was a lot of lot which is misunderstood about China, and I think too often people try and judge China by Western standards. And if you think that um, China will evolve into an economy where everybody drives a Mercedes car and walks up and down a shopping mall, I think you're wrong. That's not how China is going to grow. That's a very, it's a very different growth model. If you have an interesting question about this week's show, then we'd love to hear it. So send us an email or a voice note at podcast at realvisiontv.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. Yeah, that'd be great. The reviews are really, really helpful. And if you want to keep up to date with the latest interviews, the research publications, uh, and all our podcast episodes, then please follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. We're also hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. And if you want to follow uh, me on Twitter, you'll find me at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at MacroDidact. So that's it from us for another week. All right, see you next week. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com